You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where every episode can be like the first time, simply due to my inability to make cohesive thoughts. episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. This, as if you didn't know, is an internet radio show dedicated to bring you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. Actually, luckily this time we're going to be covering another Guy Gardner story, so hooray, we've got Guy Gardner annual number one. Unfortunately, it's not the best art out there. In fact, uh, despite the fact that Flint Henry has had a nice run in some other books, the art here has that sort of 90s feel that's just so overly detailed that it's really difficult to look at. But the story's by Bo Smith, so that's always a plus. However, we also have coverage of the Green Lantern story number 78, in which Kyle gets back with Donna as he's proved his manliness after his hero quest and helped uh, defeat that poor, sad, pathetic Graven, the son of Darkseid who really never went anywhere, and he's back to try and make up with Donna. It's an interesting issue because, well, he kind of uh, cements his relationship with Donna, but also because it's, well, kind of a jumping-on issue. I would think at the time, if you hadn't been reading Green Lantern and didn't know what was going on with the character, this would be a perfect point to jump on because it basically defines who the character is, where his position in the DC Universe is, and who his uh, relationships and uh, friends are. So, it's a nice starting point for the series. Unfortunately, I've been reading the series for over five years now in publishing time, so I think I've got a pretty good handle on who the character is and what his motivations are. So, eh, we'll get to it nonetheless. Plus, this time out, I'm going to get to some of your emails and uh, do a few promos as well, as the Demons of Core requests me to. So, after the promos, we'll come back, start the mail, and then head on into issue 78 of Green Lantern. Play it. Come on. Play it loud. Play it loud. 
And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Illogic. Foolish emotions. A constant irritant. And transpire out! Freak! Two! Along the circus. <laughs> right next to the dog-faced boy. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Oh, oh. It's a super prize package worth $9,388. Money. This isn't the biggest bag over the head. Punch in the face I ever got. God damn it! Ow! Go And now, together by live simulation via the internet, your hosts, Scott Gardner. He killed a police officer for Christ's sake. Yeah, goddamn lucky he didn't kill him. And Chris Honeywell. Keep away! Keep away from me! You are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, vulgar, insensitive, selfish. Stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. Oh. So you're looking at me? Yeah, because she thought you're some kind of freak. Now come on, let's go. She likes me, eh? No way. Shut up, you freak! Julia, shoot. I say shut up! It's a man! To truefreaks.com. My name is Steve Lacey, and I'm a podcaster. The randomizer hit my long boxes, and now I'm lost in my comic book collection. Help me. Help me. Listen, please, is there anybody out there who can hear me? I'm being controlled by an overbearing and fickle randomizer. I'm doing everything I can to review this book in the next 20 minutes. This is the 20 minute long box. The 20 minute long box is the briefest and most random of comic book podcasts. Every two weeks, a completely random comic book from my collection is the subject of the show. Find me at the show's site, 20minutelongbox.libsyn.com, the show's blog at 20minutelongbox.wordpress.com, or search for 20 Minute Long Box on iTunes. Prepare yourself for random. And we are back to take part in the portion of the show that I love doing, getting to read the emails that you wonderful people have sent into the show. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> no, I've been really remiss in getting your guys' emails read, so I'm going to try and get through as many of these as I possibly can. We're going to start out with a couple from uh, Scott Davis, letter writer from Canada. Thank you, Scott. Good day. I, wait, that's Australia. Sorry. Anyhow, Scott's first letter is Capital Punishment and Guy Gardner Warrior number 29. Scott writes, Hi, Sean. I'm continuing my quest to catch up on your show, and I was able to read the Capital Punishment arc and Guy Gardner Warrior number 29. Here are some notes. Act 1. It was nice to see Superman congratulate Guy on a job well done, which adds credibility to Guy Gardner's warrior character. I'm not too formal, I'm not too familiar, sorry, with Steel, but I thought it was hilarious on page eight where he shoots bolts at Sledge, which fails miserably. Yeah, Steel's main offensive weapon was 
rivets that he shot from his wrist. Uh, I guess it kind of uh, goes with his entire idea of him being a construction, you know, him building the suit. So there you go. He continues saying, is this really all Steel has to offer? He seems like a very weak character in this issue. Uh, he's better in his solo series. Guy's face plan on page 14 was great with Sledge yelling, hammer down. The reveal on the last page with Major Four sitting in Guy's mother's kitchen was excellent. This is a great way to end the issue and set up for the next one. Act 2. The battle between Guy and Major Force is great. I'm having trouble following the subplot with the Crags and the Kuns. Uh, so was I. It was something to set up the way of the warrior storyline. He continues saying, I guess we'll eventually fi find out how this all plays out. Guy's comment about the rice burner was great, and your comment about Kyle creating an Ikea chair construct was hilarious. Ugh, Militia is back. Are we really going there again? Yep, we have to finish that storyline up. Act 3, Scott continues. Okay, so Militia is a robot now. Well, I guess. I really hope this is the end of the character. Well, Mace is dead again, but I learned my lesson that no one is really dead these days. Nope, death really doesn't mean much of anything nowadays. The death of Mace in this issue had absolutely zero impact versus the death of Mace in the Amazing Yesterday's Sin storyline. Yep, that was well played. This one is just... It's just thrown in there, but it, they had to wrap up the character of Militia in some way, so... Uh, who knows, maybe we'll see Mace again. Oh wait, he's in the New 52, so... I liked the debate over who was going to kill Major Force because it added a lot to the character of Kyle and Guy, Scott continues. In the end, Kyle can't be a killer, and Guy did what he had to do. Guy's line at the end was great when he says, Some of us are meant to be heroes, and some of us were meant to be warriors. Interesting reveal at the end when Ganthet arrives back on Earth and he's looking pretty stylish in his Hugh Hefner smoking jacket. Yeah, Ganthet was... He was very, uh, pimping in that jacket. Let's just leave it at that. Guy Gardner Warrior number 29, this was an amazing issue. The art by Jimenez was fantastic. I can't agree with you more. That, that's still one of my favorite issues. If, if anyone's listening to the show and they haven't taken a look at issue 29 of Guy Gardner Warrior, go to the back issue bins and find it. I'm certain you can find it in the dollar bins. It was probably really well printed, and it's a fun, fun snapshot of that era of DC Comics. Continuing on, he says, It's funny that it looks like Darkseid is watching Kyle on a high-def TV way before they were even invented. That's because Darkseid has the technology. He's He's got the stuff way before anyone else does. That's because Darkseid's the man. All the banner written by Bo is amazing, too. What a great issue. I hope now people are really starting to realize how good the Warrior series was. Is this the end of Goldface? Uh, no, he comes back, I think, later, but... Uh, he was kind of messed up in this issue. It looks like Dementor absorbs him. I can't stop looking at the issue because the art is unbelievable. Everyone should go out and get this issue. Oh, and I'd also like to know how Buck lost his shirt in the bite. Hilarious stuff. Thanks again, Sean. Have a great week. Uh, I think Buck just loses his shirt because, well, he can. There you go. Problem solved. And continuing on with Letters from Scott, we've got another one titled Guy Gardner Warrior number 30 and 31. This one starts out saying, of course, Hi Sean. Hello Scott. Good to hear from you again. It's been a while, but I was able to catch up on some Guy Gardner Warrior issues, including Action Comics 709. This was the episode where J. David Weider came by. 
helped me out with these issues. Action Comics 709, I really like this book because it had an old school feel to it. It looks like Guy is drawn to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger in this issue. You're right, the ponytail on Clark Kent is weak, and J. David Weider's comment about Guy's tramp stamp was hilarious. Yeah, I never really thought about the tattoo being like that, but yeah, I guess there it is. Dan Turpin was absolutely great in this issue. Fun issue. Dan Turpin's always awesome. Uh, if Well, when you get to it, uh, we covered Eddie Fires in the uh, Green Lantern Green Arrow crossover, and Eddie Fires is the sort of same type of hard-boiled character that Dan Turpin is in the book, uh, at least from what I've got of the character. Fun stuff. Continuing on, he writes Guy Gardner Warrior number 30. Superman looks good on the cover, but Guy looks terrible. The Rampage character came out of nowhere. Well, Rampage was part of the Superman books, and I believe she was actually a person who worked at Star Lab, so there you go. She looks like she can kick anyone's ass. Well, probably so. The battle between Superman and Guy was great, but the scene between Hal and Arisi was creepy, especially since Hal is still hitting on a 13-year-old girl. 13-year-old in quotation marks. Remember, she she aged herself because of the ring and that. Never mind. Give it up, Hal, Scott says. During your show, I had the feeling that J. David Weider wasn't fond of Mitch Bird's art, but I could be wrong. Uh, I think David didn't mind it, but I don't think it was just his thing. Uh, he didn't really come out and say that he disliked it, but yeah, Mitch Bird's art does take some getting used to, so I don't know whether he disliked it or not. I'll, I'll, I'll say that he may not have just been too fond of it, but I don't want to speak for David. Uh, you nailed it, though, Scott says. Bird definitely uses male face profiles on the ladies. For the longest time, I was wondering what it was about his art that sometimes puts me off, and I think that's it. The scene with Dementor at the end of that Barbie dream car was bizarre. Yeah, Dementor in this little car with this really cute girl at his side was just freaky. Continuing on, Scott says, Guy Gardner Warrior 31, I can't believe I didn't realize that Dementor was the hellish offspring in the Zero issue. I'm a little slow sometimes. Don't worry, I'm right there with you. Snapping the neck of the Barbie girl was creepy. That was a tough one to watch. I guess since the bird's last issue and he wanted to draw one more sexy Arisi in her crazy tiny outfit on page 7, and he doesn't disappoint. Ugh, that outfit. I think the young boys reading this issue in the 90s got a, got a lot of use out of that picture. Ugh, hopefully the pages weren't that sticky. Uh, I like all the different artists in the flashback scenes, and, right, and you're right about the second Supergirl costume, and it's pretty bizarre with the blades coming out of her biceps and calves. Yeah, I think that even carried on into the Supergirl books. It was weird. Scott finishes up saying, Well, Dementor is gone, but for some reason I don't think this is the last we see of it. You're right on that part. Thanks again, Sean. Scott. Thank you, Scott. We're going to cover one more letter of Scott, kind of get try and get caught up, and then we'll get in some other people. This next letter is entitled Way of the Warrior, and it starts out again. Hi, Sean. Hello again, Scott. Uh, I was able to tackle the anticipated... Uh, maybe anticipated, I guess your word's not mine, Way of the Warrior crossover this past week, and I wasn't disappointed. I'm glad to hear that. I admit it had its ups and downs, but overall it was enjoyable, and I really appreciate your episodes with Luke Giaconetti, host of Earth Destruction Directive. Yep, doing that show with Luke was amazing, because Luke knows his stuff, and when he comes to a show, he always brings his A-game, so I had a blast having him on. 
Uh, Scott says, I wanted to pass along my notes. Part 1, Guy Gordon or Warrior number 32. Right off the top, I was taken off guard by the naked green girl flying through the air on page 2. Uh, that's just Fire. She's like that. I'd later find out this is actually the lovable character, Fire. I missed how Tora actually died around this time in the DC Universe. I guess I wasn't really in... I guess it really wasn't mentioned in the Guy Gardner or Green Lantern series, and I'm too lazy to look it up on Wikipedia. The reveal of Wonder Woman, I mean, Diana's new costume on page 8 was hilarious. <sighs> if you say so, I would call it embarrassing. An Ice Maiden was looking hot in the background behind her, totally checking her out. Ugh. Maybe, maybe Ice Maiden had a thing for Wonder Woman, too. Page 12 and 13 had a great sideways splash of the JLA fight in the cracks. Aresia, will you GTFO of here? You're not only causing problems with your hooker jam outfit, I'm glad you're realizing that's what it is, yes, hooker jam. She's still looking hot though on page 16, but now she looks like she's dead in the final panel on page 22. Eh. Aresia tends to die a lot in this series. Unfortunately, you know, she doesn't stay dead. Well, unfortunately, her. 90s look doesn't stay dead. That's disappointing. Can't wait till the next issue to find out if she survives or not. Well, unfortunately, you won't find out till far down the line. Part 2, JLA 101. I admit I'm actually surprised that Gerard Jones is still writing for DC at this time. He had a great run on Green Lantern, but it didn't particularly end well there. This was a strange issue. I'm really surprised with all the quote-unquote gay overtones in this issue. We find out that Fire and Ice Maiden have a might have a thing for each other on page 10, and it looks like Albert is poking Todd from behind. Oh, on page 20. Uh, now I know that I know that Todd Obsidian eventually came out as gay, but I don't think he was actually having anything to do with Nuclon. I think this might have been just Gerard Jones being kind of heavy-handed with the idea that he might be gay, but. I had to laugh when Fire went crazy and burned out Albert's eyes on page 9, Scott says. Speaking of gay overtones, I also find it funny that Gerard is still using Flicker in his books. Yeah, Flicker. He's something. Moving on to part 3, Hawkman number 22. I agree with you, Obsidian is very unlikable in this issue with all of his one. I don't know how vicious Hawkman was until I saw him slice the alien's throat on page 21 and was actually very surprised at how violent this issue was overall. I really enjoyed Luke's, Luke's review of the Hawkman character in Repsode. It was excellent. Liked this issue and the art was great. Part 4, Guy of Gardner Warrior number 33. Wow, the art by Mark Campos in this issue was amazing and very detailed, but it was very hard to figure out what was going on sometimes. We'll get a lot more of that today, just hold on. It actually gave me a headache, and I tried to grab the Tylenol. I had to grab the Tylenol after reading it. This was a fighting issue, so I really don't have any notes on it. But I wonder if Probert is related to some famous hockey goon in the 90s named Rob Probert. I don't know. Maybe I will have to ask Mr. Bo Smith about that. He used to beat the living shit out of anyone that looked at him wrong. Look him up on YouTube, and you'll see what I mean. That's my Canadian reference for the day. Part 5, JLA 102. This was a weird one. I find that the characters in the JLA were pretty weak right now, and the lesbian storyline between Ice Maiden and Fire is not very interesting at all. That's disappointing, because I bet there's fanfic on the internet about Fire and Ice Maiden, and it's probably, uh, well, no, it's probably not very good either. 
I have no interest in pursuing any more JLA issues after this, and this issue doesn't really fit into the way of the warrior arc anyway, except for the introduction of the monster baby that plays an important part in the final issue. This issue was terrible. Uh, I wouldn't say terrible, but I would agree with you in the fact that it really didn't further the storyline with the way of the warrior. Part 6, Hawkman 23. I'm really enjoying the Hawkman issues, especially the part art by Steve Lieber. Page 5 splash of Hawkman coming in the water with his gun was awesome. Fully agree with you there. Lieber drew a massively awesome Hawkman. I thought it was hilarious on page 12 with Karine cupping guys. Uh, I'll just say cupping guys area. I didn't think you could portray that in comics, but I guess there is no comics code authority on this issue. Luke nailed it. Karine is definitely a butterface, quote unquote, especially in the panel where she's walking away from Guy on page 14. I was actually a bit disturbed by the potential rape of Guy by an alien, though. Yeah, it's not comics code, so I guess I can get away with it, but rapiness seems to abound in DC. Well, uh, never mind. Of course, this is before I found out that Karine was hot. Part 7, Guy Gardner Warrior number 34. Again, the art by Mark Campos is amazing, although I thought it was a bit hard to follow what was going on sometimes. I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw Lobo arrive in the final issue to help save the day. Hey, that's a 90s comic. Lobo, Lobo's gotta show up sometime. Uh, the splash on page 10 and 11 was very gory with Guy blasting away at the aliens. Overall, the violence was crazy throughout the whole issue. I think that's kind of what they were going for. Just overplay the violence and make it cartoony so it's not as... So you're not affected by it as much. So it doesn't really unnerve you. If it's cartoony violence, I think you can get away with a lot easier. He continues, Isn't it a bit pretentious to assume that your race is so beautiful that you need to wear alien masks to hide your beauty? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? The ending was weird with Guy getting obsessed, but overall I enjoyed this issue. I agree with you both that this was a decent crossover. I like how it's nice and contained within three books. I enjoyed some more than the others, but in the end I was pleased with reading them. Thanks, Sean, and have a great week, Scott. Well, thank you, Scott. I appreciate you writing in. And uh, we've got a few more letters from Scott, but I'd like to get some other people right now. So we're going to take a look at some other letters. The first one being from Hugo Rivera, I think a new letter writer. Hey, thanks for writing, uh, Hugo. Uh, this one is entitled The Kyle Donna Breakup Show. He says, hello, Sean. Hugo Rivera here again. Whoops. Maybe not. First time. Well... That's me not reading letters long enough, so thanks for writing in again, Hugo. I really appreciate it. He says, I love the show, and thank you for doing it. Is this is this the episode you question the fact that Kyle and the big green ring on his finger and how people cannot put two and two together and not figure out that Kyle is GL? Yeah, I was kind of wondering about that, especially when Allison in the, par- the apartment you know, saw him with the ring on. He said, I've read a while back, I'm not sure where, but somewhere in DC lore, that when GLs are not in uniform, that the ring is invisible. Us readers, since we're not part of the story, can see the ring because we know the person is GL, so the artist draws the ring. People that don't know the secret identity cannot see it. I know it takes a lot of suspicion, sorry, suspension of disbelief, or suspension of belief, sorry, but when you have the most powerful weapon in the universe, all bets are off in my book. Loyal listener, as always, Hugo Rivera. Well, thank you, Hugo. And yeah, I kind of figured that was the mm, sort of no prize answer for it. But it still bugs me when 
Cowell's got this gigantic green ring on his hand in the artwork, and he's just flashing around people who are not supposed to know that he's Green Lantern. But, yeah, I guess it works in the storytelling aspect. Our next letter comes from Jason Black, and it's about episode 72, the episode where we cover the Guy Gardner issue where it was the Mike Parabek art in the uh, Guy Gardner Warrior issue, which was a total blast to do. But Jason writes, I just heard this podcast last night, and one thing stood out. You mentioned that Guy and Fire were speaking Spanish, and you used Google Translator to try and figure out what they were saying. Fire, being from Brazil, probably should be speaking Portuguese. And that didn't occur to me, and I need to go back and try and translate it in Portuguese, see if that works. But Jason says, I don't have this book yet, so I really can't verify this. Maybe the writers didn't realize this and used Spanish. Love the show and getting your inputs on more Guy Gardner books to put up. Pick up, sorry. Thanks. Well, thank you for writing in, Jason. I never would have thought about that. And yes, the fact that fire comes from Brazil and Spanish is different than Portuguese never really crossed my mind when I went to Google Translate. Mea culpa there. And our final, uh, our final letter for the show comes from the man who's actually seen the adult version of the movie Pacific Rim, and he really doesn't want to talk about it in any way, shape, or form at all, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. And Luke writes in with the title, Ancient Egypt, 90s Cartoons, and the Return of Ann Coulter, Space Barbarian Queen. Sort of. Luke writes, Sean, episode 72 was a lot of fun to listen to. Well, thanks, Luke. I'm glad I entertained you. I try my best. In the lead Green Lantern issue, you had a pretty nifty-sounding team-up of Kyle and Big Red Cheese, Captain Marvel. And then in the Guy Gardner issue, it was the incomparable Mike Parabek illustrating the hilarious concept of a warrior animated series. I also have to applaud the music in each segment as well. The Superman the Animated Series music in the Guy Gardner segment might have been an obvious choice, but as I often say, sometimes the obvious choice is the right choice. And I love the use of the mummy music in the Green Lantern segment. Love that movie or hate it, one has to give it props for the score by Jerry Goldsmith, which evokes the old Universal Monster musical scores, but it updates them nicely. I happen to be a big fan of the film. The first Mummy film I think was a really good one. I think I've seen most of the second one, but I really wasn't all that jonesed on it. And by the third one, where he was fighting mummies in, I think, in Asia... I'm saying Asia like that's one place. I, I'm certain it was like maybe China. That's probably it. I was just completely tuned out. But it was the first one was an enjoyable movie in sort of the veins of Raiders of the Lost, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So not bad movie. Luke continues on. Anyway, in the Green Lantern issue, making the parry of Guile, Kyle and Billy Batson is very appealing. Captain Marvel is a character who DC seems to really want to succeed, but they never get a good handle on how to have him carry his own title, at least after the old Power of Shazam series. But he works well in situations like this as the guest star, as his early stint in the JSA. He was also used to great effect in the Young Justice animated series. Not a bad life being a cool guest star. Lots of characters would love to be in a situation like that. Over in Guy Gardner, the whole Toy Fair and Coulter animated series plot brings a big grin to my face. Parabek's work is the stuff of legends at this point, and even in the simplistic animated style, there's a lot of subtlety. One of the tenets of character design for animation is that every character must be uniquely identifiable by silhouette alone. 
Paraback always shined at this technique. He did an animated style 90s era Hawkman for a Superman magazine once, and it was downright glorious. He is definitely missed. I fully agree with you, Luke. In fact, I remember uh, Scott talking about that. It was one of the... I can't remember if it was in the Superman Adventures book or if it was in the magazine portion, but yeah, Parabek's art is just wonderful. Uh, I also agree with the the whole thing about uh, you should be able to identify these simplistic cartoons by silhouettes. That was one of the things I know Matt Groening said about his characters. I mean, if you look at the characters from Futurama in silhouette, Fry, Leela, and Bender, their silhouettes are so iconic, you can instantly recognize them without having to see any of the detail of their faces. So I, I completely agree with you on that. Luke continues, a brawl at the Toy Fair immediately reminds me of Iron Man issue number 72, where Shellhead tangles with Melter, Manbull, and Whiplash at the San Diego Comic-Con. The, the Black Llama pops up as well. The Black Llama? Okay. Consider this issue of Guy Gardner Warrior to be on my must-buy list. Definitely. Uh, if if you getting issues of Guy Gardner, 41, the Parabek issue, 29, 39, all must-haves. Definitely. Regarding the ads, Luke finishes up. One of the games you mentioned was for the Game Gear was Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Now that you know that I'm a tokusatsu, Japanese live-action special effects fan, and Power Rangers fan as well. But did you know I'm a big fan of the Sega Game Gear and still play games from that system to this day? Well, I do now. That game, along with the sequel, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers the movie, is one of the best 8-bit fighting games that I have ever played. 16 characters, 3 special moves apiece, a full story mode, in addition to the versus mode, a dream match mode, wow, where the human-sized characters can fight the giant robots, plenty of attention to detail, and one of the fastest smoothing 2D fighting engines ever deployed on an 8-bit system. The Game Gear essentially being a scaled-down Sega Master System with a larger color palette. Interesting. I played that game for hours and hours back in the early 90s and still log time on it now, in form of a ROM on my Game Boy Advance. And I still own my Game Gear and all the games, but the system itself is in need of repair. The battle against Reader Repulsa rages on. Let the power return. Anyways, love the episode, dude. Keep up the good work, Luke. Luke, thanks for writing in. It's always great to hear from you, especially your commentary on these video games or the ads for these video games. I'm glad you enjoyed a lot of this stuff, too. Uh, I only had the Sega Genesis at the time. I had a friend who had a game year. It was fun, but I could never get into it. I never really got into the handheld stuff myself. But I'm going to close up the email bag right now because we're sitting at the 30-minute mark. So I'm going to go ahead and start getting into the coverage of Green Lantern number 78. Green Lantern number 78 was covered dated September 1996 with a release date of July 3rd, 1996. Thank you to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics for the info on that. Cover price was $1.75 US and $2.50 Canada. The title was A Beginning. Story was by Ron Mars. Pencils, Daryl Banks. Inks, Romeo Tangal. Color was by Pamela Rambo. Letters were by Chris Iliopoulos, associate editor Eddie Braganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. If Superman were making the save, he would just put himself in place at the collapsed rails and allow the train to pass over his body. Unfortunately, Cal Rayner is not Superman, so instead he rings up a floating locomotive and stops the train before it hits the broken rails. 
pausing to wave goodbye to the conductor, Kyle heads off as a mysterious person in sunglasses looks skyward. Cut to a local hospital where former Green Lantern and Dark Star John Stewart is recuperating while his girlfriend Baron and Kyle watch over him. After the fight with Darkseid's bastard son Graven a few issues ago, John is in really bad shape. In fact, he might not be able to walk again. But despite these setbacks, John is grateful to be alive, and grateful that Kyle was there to save him. Kyle mentions that he's trying to carry on in the tradition of the lanterns that came before him, and John says that he's had a good start and will only get better. Saying his farewells, Kyle departs from the hospital room via an open window, as a mysterious person in sunglasses looks skyward. On his way to the Manhattan skyline, Cal catches a glimpse of smoke rising from his residential area and goes to investigate. The firemen there are doing their best, but there's a child on the top floor that they can't reach. Cal lures the kid to a window with a ring construct hamburger and rescues the young boy as the building collapses around him. Green Lantern then drops the boy off with a fireman and replaces his lost teddy bear with a brand new ring construct one. As all the while, a mysterious person in sunglasses looks skyward. We follow Kyle through the rest of his day of heroics, both grand and mundane, as Kyle monologues about how fun it is to be Green Lantern, as all the while, a mysterious person in sunglasses looks skyward. Finally, Kyle heads back to his apartment to recharge his ring, and he's off to meet with that mysterious person in sunglasses a sunbathing Donna Troy. Kyle asks that if anyone else is around, and Donna says that this part of the beach in Cozumel is deserted. And with that, Kyle ditches his GL uniform of for a little something for the ladies. The two engage in some small talk, with Donna asking Kyle about the search for his father, and Kyle asking about Donna's new career, sans the Dark Stars and Teen Titans. Donna says she came here to try and figure out where her life is going, and that includes what's going on with Kyle. The two talk about their relationship, and what they both want from it, and they both agree that they want to try and work things out. And to prove how serious he is, Kyle professes his love for Donna, and uses the ring to create a heart necklace for Donna to keep. Kyle says that even though it's a ring construct, it was created by him, and so long as he believes in it and their relationship, it will never go away. Touched by the sentiment, Donna returns Kyle's admission of their love as the young couple kiss in front of the softly setting sun. Like I said early in the show, the first half of this issue seems like a big character info dump. I mean, for people who have been reading this for a long time this is really unnecessary information with a lot of the dialogue in the dialogue boxes or the caption boxes sorry telling you what long-term readers would already know i'm not certain if at this time after issue 75 there was a big push or a big increase in readership in green lantern my limited research on sales figures for the time say that it probably wasn't but maybe dc editorial just wanted to push the book more and thought that the idea of a initial jumping on point would be a good thing to have after issue 75. Essentially, all of the first half of the issue really doesn't interest me all that much. It's the last half where we get to the relationship stuff with Donna and Kyle that the story really picks up for me. But with that, let's go ahead and head into my notes. Uh, 
the cover is a nice but really kind of generic cover by Banks of Tangal. I mean, Kyle looks good, but the lantern in the background looks uh, a little weird. I think they're trying to distinguish it from Hal's old lantern by giving it this sort of weird ridges on the handle and you know they're also kind of shading it in the way that Kyle's symbol on his shirt or on his uniform is symbol with the black on one side and the green on the other it's a nice dynamic image but it's kind of also hindered from the fact that Danks or not Danks Banks and Tangal have both put a big caption box and signed their names on it so it was obvious that this was more supposed to be maybe a poster rather than actual issue cover so uh, what can you do page one it's some nice artwork but i've gotta wonder why is kyle wearing the gauntlets from for the man who has everything storyline i mean the ring construct gloves that he's using to try and push back the uh, subway train or actually i guess the elevated train really look like the ones that robin took the uh, black mercy in in that story so Maybe just a bit of artistic homage to it. Then on page two, I'm wondering what the heck caused a huge section of the elevated train track to go out. I mean, is New York City maintenance just that lax? I mean, first we get the metal shard on the handrail of the stairs and Statue of Liberty, which causes a supervillain to appear. And now we get this. Man, Giuliani must not be running the city very well. Page 3, panel 5. At first, the mysterious person in the sunglasses could have been anyone. It could have been a villain. It could have been someone Kyle knew. You you didn't know until the end, but it's interesting that they bring on this reveal throughout the book. And you also don't know what the character's intent is, uh, since all you see is reflected in their sunglass what looks to be either a large yellow explosion. I mean... It just so happens to be the sun, but yeah, not knowing who this is or what they're looking at or where they are gives it kind of a, well, gives you kind of an unnerving feeling, especially when you see it progressing through the book. On page four, panel three, this is just an odd little nitpicky thing. And one in the middle of one of the caption boxes where Kyle is describing his battle with Graven, there's a little green lantern symbol just placed in there in between two sentences and i don't know whether it was there to separate the sentences or whether it was a mistake or whether it was supposed to accentuate something but it's there and it's it's just a little nitpicky thing that i found in there and you know when you're covering a book uh, like i am or like anyone else would be you tend to notice these odd things going on in it page five we start to get the uh, setup that John, as well as Guy later on, will become sort of a mentor, friend, and to some extent, uh, an extended family member with Kyle. That's one of the neat things that I like about this run is later on throughout it, uh, the former Green Lanterns sort of have a relationship with Kyle. And this is sort of the beginning of this here. And I like the fact that eventually both John and Guy are going to be important parts of uh, Kyle's life as he matures and grows as a Green Lantern. Then moving on to page 8, New York City is incredibly disaster prone. I mean, on this panel we get a shot of Kyle saving a plane from crashing with a, oddly enough, a Superman ring construct. 
Then he saves a gargoyle from falling onto a passing taxi. And then, to prove it's the 90s, Kyle beats up a thug. And how do you know it's a 90s thug? Well, he's got a bitchin' wife beater and awesome Fabio hair. Yep, it's the 90s, Jake. It's the 90s. And continuing on with the whole theme of the 90s in this book, how do you know it's the 90s? Well, Kyle really doesn't know the Green Lantern Oath. In fact, I think he's never been told it and has never said it before. So you wonder, how long does he know how to charge the ring for? Well, he relates it to the time of a typical 9-inch nails cut. Yeah, that's how long he charges the ring for. So... Head like a hole, you've got it completely charged up. There you go. Page 12, as Kyle's heading off to wherever, we see some sort of weird yellow light emanating from Kyle's lantern. And I've read ahead, so I know who this is, but at the time, I didn't remember who it was. But now that I know who it is, it's very clever that they've set this up, and it in fact, it ties back in with something that happened in the Gerard Jones run of Green Lantern. So I'm giving credit to Ron Mars here for uh, taking this idea that was laid forth uh, over three or four years ago and putting it into play in this storyline. So nice on you, Ron. Pages 14 and 15. This is what I like about Darrow Banks. Now he's finally come back into the story. He's finally come back to do artwork for the Green Lantern story, and he's got it back down. This is a beautiful splash page of Donna, who we now find out was the person in the glasses. I think it's just some amazing artistic form is with, with Donna because she is just so very attractive here. Um... One of the little things I have to say is, though, I think Romeo Tangal may have gotten a bit risque with the, some of the inking on here because, well, it seems to be a little crafty. If, I hate to say this, if you look around her bikini line with Donna on this on this two-page splash, the bikini of her, or the fabric of her bikini doesn't quite cover everything, and it looks like it might be showing a little bit of her uh, Paradise Island, if you know what I mean. I think you do. But just because there's an awesome two-page splash of an incredibly hot Donna Troy in there, it doesn't mean that uh, Banks doesn't draw a little cheesecake for the ladies as Kyle decides to uh, get out of his uh, Green Lantern costume and basically ring himself up a nice little skimpy Green Lantern Speedo, so... Little things for the ladies as well. So you could see this book appealing to some female readers, maybe. Hopefully. I, I would think so. One of the things I complained about a while back, when Pelletier was drawing the issue, especially the breakup issue, uh, Kyle and Donna had amazing emotions on their face, and you could really read them through Pelletier's issues. Back in 74 and 75, uh, Banks really didn't get the facial features right. It looked like he was drawing mannequins rather than drawing people with emotions and trying to express something. The artwork here has gotten a lot better, and he's actually drawing the characters with a lot of emotions in his in their faces. So I'm liking the fact that Banks is doing this because 
this issue is about Donna and Kyle reconnecting and trying to get back in a relationship. And you need to be able to convey more than just their attractiveness. You need to be able to convey their emotions and what they're feeling through the artwork. And in previous issues, he wasn't doing it, but now he's kind of gotten back into it and he's doing a great job here. Um, page 17, panel one. I've got a bit of a problem with Mars's writing here. Donna tries to tell Kyle how she feels, and he turns the conversation into something about him. It kind of makes Kyle feel sort of selfish and shallow in this portion of the book, but he eventually turns it around and brings it back to wanting to talk with Donna. It kind of feels like he's writing a character that's developing from a kind of self-absorbed 20-something into a person who's accepting a bigger responsibility, and that's obviously what the character of Kyle is going through right now. However, as much as I praised Banks' arts throughout this issue, on page 18, something's gone a little off. The artwork looks a little bit more simplistic. It's not as detailed. Maybe the inking is just not as detailed, but the faces also aren't showing the emotion that they were showing earlier in the issue. So maybe it's just this was a quickly rushed page, but the art doesn't look as good on it. However, the writing on this page is as good as ever. In fact, uh, on these couple of panels, I want to read this uh, portion that Kyle says. After Donna says, My heart's been broken too many times. I don't want to be hurt anymore. Kyle replies, I understand. Look, I'm a guy. Guys are jerks. There are a lot of specimens out there who make me embarrassed to have a Y chromosome. But they're not me, Donna. At least, not who I want to be. I'm not perfect but I'm trying. You have to let me try, and you have to trust me. Mars is getting the character. Kyle is coming around from being the very stereotypical 90s self-centered slacker character to a responsible young adult who knows that his purpose in life is much bigger than just going to the clubs and picking up women and dancing the night away. Then on pages 19 through 22, we get the idea of Kyle making this necklace that is going to be the bond between Kyle and Donna. And on the surface, it could be kind of cheesy because it's just a ring construct. It's something that really isn't there. But Morris, through the story, takes it and makes it more important. Yes, it's a construct, but it's something that Kyle has to focus on and has to think about in order for it to be real. And because he wants his relationship with Donna to be real, the construct and this sort of representation of his love will always be real. So it's a nice metaphor that Mars is putting out here, and it's it's a really touching moment. And we get a nice shot at the end of uh, Donna and Kyle kissing on a sort of sunlit or sunsetting beach. So it's, it's a nice issue. Like I said, the first half of the issue with the explanation of what Kyle's doing and the sort of wrap-up of the uh, Dark Stars storyline eh, didn't really do all that much for me, but the last part was really good. Artwork was amazing. Ron Mars is getting the character perfectly right. I'm thoroughly, thoroughly enjoying it. <sighs> However, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoying might not be the words that I'll be using for the next issue, as after this break, we're going to take a look at Guy Gardner Annual number one. It's for every one of us. 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 It's for every
every breed of Mongo live together in peace. Wait, he said Mongo, didn't he? That's wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of The Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.limpson.com. Attention, people of Earth, do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hey, you! Yes, you! Hearing this message. Do you like podcasts? Well, evidently you do, because you're listening to one right now. Do you like giant monsters? Of course you do! Who doesn't like giant monsters? Well, then have I got the show for you. Earth Destruction Directive is the newest Daikaiju podcast on the internet. And we talk about all your old favorites, like Godzilla, Rodan, King Ghidorah, and Gamera. But also lesser-known monsters like Gappa, Yangari, and Giawa. We cover everything from movies to comic books to video games, and we're kicking it old school. This is breaking news. We are receiving word that Earth's Destruction Directive is now a part of the Two True Freaks podcast network. Listeners are advised to stay in their homes and listen to all of the fine quality podcasts on the Two True Freaks podcast network. Available at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. We now return you to your regularly scheduled broadcast. Wait a minute. Is this true? Earth Destruction Directive is now on the Two True Freaks Network? You bet your oxygen destroyer it is. So if you love atomic-powered, fire-breathing, hardcore, giant monster action, then head on over to Two True Freaks com and check out Earth Destruction Directive. We're turning all of your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. And we are back to take a look at the first of two annuals of Guy Gardner Warrior. Now, it's nice that Guy Gardner Warrior got a couple of annuals because, you know, it did have sort of a short run. However, as we'll see in this annual... Like most annuals, sometimes it's not the best output for the book, so we'll get to that in the notes. But the basic gist is, Guy Gardner Warrior Annual Number 1 was cover dated 1995 and released on or about May 23rd of 1995. The cover price was $350 US and $495 Canada, and surprisingly, £2.50 UK. The title was Battle From Within... The story was by Bo Smith, the script was by Flint Henry, pencils by Flint Henry, inks were by Flint Henry, Rod Ramos, pages 26, 29, and 33, 
Bogd Vorak, pages 27, 30, and 37, and 39, and Phil Jimenez, pages 28, 31, 32, and 38. Gives you an idea of the inconsistency that might be present in the art. Colors were by Scott Bowman, letters were by Albert Guzman, and edits were by Eddie Briganza. Our story begins with Guy being taunted by the faces of his mortal enemies, Militia, Sledge, Extant, and Dementor. Lying in a bed of the warrior's medical bay, even Guy's companions, Buck Wargo, Verona, Steel, and Lady Blackhawk are repulsed by what he's become. Luckily, it was all just a bad dream, as Guy awakens to find a concerned Buck and Verona at his side. Guy is worried that he can't control these new powers, but Buck feels that there might be an answer in the strange relic Guy brought back from the Napo jungle. Guy places his hands on either sides of the stone, and the ethereal figure of Cardone appears and transports Guy to an alien rainforest alongside two Voldarian warriors. The male, named Mandar, tells Guy to be very quiet. They were hunting Weechens. <laughs> an alien race that sucked the bodily fluids from other organisms to regenerate their own power. Guy wonders why they just don't dine on the juicy plant life that covers the planet, and the female, named Felina, says that just they just enjoy killing. And with that, the trio is set upon by the grotesque Green Legion, which immediately goes for Guy. Mandar tries to intervene, but Felina wants to see if Guy can handle the attack, which he does by ripping the spine from the back of the alien. Impressed with his prowess, the Valdarians make a hasty retreat to avoid the Legion patrol that was following the officer that Guy just killed. Hiding in a nearby body of water, the trio waits until the patrol passes by, then they leap from the water and tear into the Emerald Extraterrestrials. After ultraviolently dispatching the Legions, Guy and company head out to find shelter before they start hunting their prey again. Some time has passed. And Guy and company are enjoying some shelter and some mystery meat, as Mandar tells them his plan is to sneak into the Legion camp. As Mandar heads out, he tells Felina to teach Guy the way of the Voltarians. Guy is reluctant at first, but when Felina presents the lesson in the form of a hot Voltarian nookie session, Guy is completely ready to learn what she's teaching. Meanwhile, Mandar has found the Legion base and discovered that Harkoon brother of Tormach leader Bronk, is in league with the Legion. Hearing that a breed is accompanying the Valdarians, Harkoon hopes that he'll be able to use his neutralizer <laughs> on him and his companions. Back at the Beast with Two Backs base camp, Guy is fighting the transformation while Felina listens to Mandor's report about the Tormach and Legion alliance. Saying that she has to go help her partner, Felina leaves Guy covered in his own fluids. Hopefully not those kind of fluids. Meanwhile, some more time has passed and Guy awakens to head out to find the Valdarian duo. Unfortunately, Harkoon has captured them and is torturing Felina with the... No! Eventually taking her life. Feeling a calm come over him, Guy accepts his heritage and leaps in to attack the murdering menaces. Morphing all kinds of crazy weapons, Guy tears it through the alien forces and eventually delivers justice to Harkoon by using his own neutralizer on the Tormach despot. 
Guy bemoans the fact that if he would have accepted his heritage, Felina and Mandar would have survived. However, Cardone appears and tells Guy that this never really happened, to which Guy tells Cardone to explain just what the heck was going on. Cardone explains that because of Guy's Voltarian and human size were unwilling to mesh, he implanted the memory of this battle in Guy's mind in order to cause him to accept his heritage. All that Guy witnessed actually occurred, only it was Cardone in Guy's place, and Felina was his bride-to-be. Due to the intensity of this memory, Guy was able to accept his alien DNA and to become the last of the Valdarian race. To become the warrior. This is going to be a tough review, uh, simply because, well, it's an art problem here. Again, the story by Smith is really pretty good. I mean, there's nothing negative I have to say about it. It's defining new, it's defining guys' new status and powers. But the art, this comes about at a time right around the way of the warrior storyline. If you remember back then. Luke Giaconetti and I were commenting on the fact that the artwork was uh, very 90s and very overblown and over the top. This is also another example of it. I think sometimes the artists in the 90s wanted to be so detailed that the art became too detailed. and There were just too much line work in there and it was so detailed that it really looked kind of bad. And if you look at the release date on it, it does come out right around the time that the way the Warrior storyline was coming out. So it's sort of sandwiched in there in that era where DC was trying to grasp at that image wrong and try and chase after the image images, if that makes any sense, the image artwork. So the look is very overly muscled, overly muscled and overly detailed and just it's not pleasant to look at and it's sometimes it's so hard to try and figure out what's going on in the book that it really takes you out of it and makes it a difficult read so but i will go through notes and we'll see if we can find some some hidden gems in this book there's probably a few here and i think one of them is the cover which was drawn by joyce chin uh, she came over from the first way of the warrior storyline to do this cover and to be honest, it's probably the best in the book. Now, Chin's art, again, is very 90s. Guy is very muscled. I mean, you see far, far too much detail in his enormously huge chest and arms. But at least you can see what's going on here. Uh, it looks like Guy has morphed his hands into blades and has cut off the head of someone. And there's Felina in the background with a uh, giant gun as well. So... It's a very 90s looking cover and, you know, it's actually kind of decent and sadly it's probably some of the best art that we'll get in the book. However, then moving on to page one, it it begins and we get the image of uh, Guy's, you know, enemies at the time of Dementor and Militia, Sledge and Extant. Uh, I guess uh, good old Black Serpent hadn't made it into the book yet, so uh, thank goodness for that. 
But yeah, the artwork here is just, there's so much line work and so much detail that it's really, really difficult to see what's going on at times. Now, I tried to look it up, and Flint Henry is an artist that worked on some storylines in uh, at Marvel, a book called Law Dog, and plus he did uh, a Man Bat sort of, I don't know whether it was a miniseries or a short-term book with Chuck Dixon writing it. And to clarify things, Flint Henry is a different person than Henry Flint, although it kind of looks from what I've seen, their art style looks kind of like, but Henry Flint was actually an artist who did a stint on the 2080 book Judge Dredd. Now, like I said, Henry's art is very detailed, almost to the point that there's so much going on that it makes the characters look really unreal. And the best way I can try and describe the artwork to you is if you've ever seen the first heavy metal movie, the animated movie with uh, voices from Saturday Night Live, John Candy was in it. The first story in that about the cabbie, that's kind of what the artwork looks like. So if you can kind of get that in your mind, this is what you're seeing on the pages here. Moving on to page three, I never would have noticed it unless I would have had to go search for the title. Again, thanks to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics for giving the title. Because on this page is we get a sort of picture that looks right out of uh, right out of a horror movie. As Guy's face is all red and bursting things from him and veins popping out. In the side of Guy's head is morphed out the title of the book. So, kind of icky and never would have really noticed it had it not been kind of pointed out to me. Page 5, panel 4, here's, I hate to keep doing this, but there's another really awkward example of the art. As Guy's putting his hands on the inducer or whatever you want to call it, the thing that he got from the Naba jungle, we get an image of Verona looking at what he's doing and Buck beside her, and Verona's neck is just really out of proportion. It's sticking out from her from her body and then sort of craning up so her neck looks like it's coming out of her body at like a 135 degree sort of obtuse angle it's it's almost bird-like if that makes any sense uh sort of like an emu or an ostrich uh, uh it's just not good however i will give credit where credit's due here on this next page on page six uh Flint Henry does a good job of drawing Cardone. I think the detail actually works here. And it might be sort of benefited that his color is all just one sort of shade of uh, this ethereal reddish pink. So it's not bogged down with the coloring as well, which I think was one of the things that kind of detracted from the artwork and the way of the warrior storyline. However, the uh, artwork doesn't last being so good. as It goes back on page 9 to the almost incomprehensible as we look at the introduction or we get the introduction of legions and you have to kind of take some time to look at this because if you look you can actually see where their eyes are but you have to kind of look around because there's tentacles and limbs and the design of them is just really weird and I 
I hate the fact that I'm having to criticize this so highly because I actually kind of enjoy the story and I love this run of Guy Gardner, but oh, the artwork just doesn't work for me. And then again on page 11, panel 2, we get more wonky female anatomy as we see Mandar trying to hold Felina back and her head looks normal sized and her torso looks normal sized, but then it moves down to her her hips and everything, and they look like they're squashed almost into her torso. They don't look far enough away. The perspective is really off. The artwork is just so overly detailed. It's uh, I'm gonna keep moving on. Same thing on we move to page fourteen and. I think maybe the coloring is kind of detracting from the art as well because on this page this is a one page splash and it should be really awesome but the art being so overly detailed with the water dripping off these with off of Mandar who's popping out of this lake or whatever to attack the legions is just so much line work and so much detail and the coloring is just so bland it's just a giant squiggly red thing attacking a bunch of giant squiggly green things and again it's just not enjoyable to look at it's difficult to figure out what's going on and that takes you out of the book really really quickly I'm looking through my notes and noticing I'm just complaining a lot about the art so I'm going to kind of skip over that and go to page 17 where it's a scene that's kind of nice. It's Guy popping out of the water, and Felina's asking him, you know, what happened to the legion that attacked him, and it's kind of amusing because Guy points at one place and says that he, he's over there, and he's over there, and points in another place, and some of it's over there as well. So Guy basically ripped the legion in half, so it's a nice comedic moment in there, and the artwork is benefited, I think, from Guy in his tattooed form, popping out of this sort of blue-green water. So there's a nice contrast there. So in this part of the book, the artwork actually kind of works with Guy's tattooed look. Page 19 is Guy and Felina and Mandar are enjoying a bit of food that they found. I, I'm parking back to the skit from George Carlin where he's talking about being a fussy eater. Of course, some people eat anything. I know that. Some guys eat anything. I saw those guys in the army on the chow line. What's this? Never mind. Give me a whole lot of it. <laughs> That's rat's asshole, Don. <laughs> well, it certainly makes a hell of a fondue. <laughs> I think I'll actually keep that in because, yeah, even though that could get me the explicit tag, I, I don't want to mess with George Carlin. He's awesome. Again, pages 20 and 21, we get the the love scene between Guy and Felina. And, you know, there might be a bit of sexiness to this. I mean, they're making out in front of this giant moonlit thing. And, you know, Felina's touching him. And, you know, there's a lot of sensuality to it. But Felina is just a mass of reddish hair with all these weird curls and everything. And... Again, the detail is so overwrought that it's just, it robs the storyline of any eroticism that there was supposed to be in there. And I guess, yeah, that's disappointing. 
in a book that's supposed to make you feel that there's some sort of connection between these two characters. And then on the next page, <laughs> the coloring just, it moves from the sort of reds and yellows from the other page, these blues and purples and these dark colors. <laughs> Why was this book drawn? Who, what does the enemy look like? What, what is going on here? Uh, oh, uh, I, I'm going to, I'm going to just pass. I've got a few more notes on individual pages. I'm just going to pass up to something good. Um, on page 37, let me get to it. Uh, the artwork actually takes a step up as Guy and Cardone are talking to each other and, you know, Guy actually looks a bit better here, but man, oh man, it's, uh, artwork brings the storyline down and I guess on uh, I guess I'll just go to my final note on page 40 we get a final sort of splash that uh, shows Guy and his warrior persona with all of you know his life you know leading behind him and you get all the iterations of Guy as little Guy Gardner with his uh, general glory books you get a guardian you get Kilowog on here uh, Guy and his ridiculous booster gold armor and then guy in his zero hour armor and you also get an image of ice on here and it'd be really nice because it's not the uh, ice in the slutty outfit but it's ice in her jli outfit but uh her it looks like she got breast implants they're, they're just pointy and uh not good at all now, in this book, instead of having a letters column, which you know they really couldn't have for an annual, they've got a sort of sketchbook, and it's kind of neat because it's Guy Gardner, or it's uh, Bo Smith, talking about what he wanted to do with the character of Guy Gardner. And the first page has some interesting sketches. Unfortunately, it's by Flint Henry, uh, talking about you know the various characters and drawing them. And I think without the inking or without with it just being the pencils the artwork is a little bit more you have a bit more ability to understand what's going on in the artwork uh it's not bad the next couple of pages have uh artwork by mitch bird uh, including the uh, design of dementor and the pencils for the cover copy of uh issue 22 i think the one where or maybe 23 where guys in the nava jungle that's really nice um Pretty much, Mitch Bird is the artist that Bo Smith wanted to go by, and uh, he, uh, when he basically does the cover for that one, it says Mitch captioned it saying, "Yeah, Mitch is the man. I want to go to the Naba Jungle for my vacation." Uh, the story that they've got going on in these pages is also written by uh, by Bo Smith, so it kind of defines what the character of Guy is, and it gives a. Uh, different looks i think it's kind of funny however on this uh one page uh it's got a mitch bird design of the armor that guy wore during zero hour and bo smith writes uh the chuck dixon armor eddie i'm getting him out of this so it's good to know that bo smith also didn't really care for the armor of the time uh one of the neat things though at the end is uh he's got uh buck wargo and the monster hunters and he's got profiles of those characters and uh I guess the artwork here is by Brad Gorby, and it's not bad. It's some nice sketches, nice pencil work, uh, very loose-looking uh, pencils, but uh, I think they get the characters down. One of the neat things, or a couple of neat things I found on this uh, was 
Buck was called a cowboy version of Doc Savage, which again harkens back to the idea that Bo Smith was pulling from a lot of pulp ideals to uh, make this book and make the characters in this book. So I enjoy the fact that Doc Savage is kind of the uh, inspiration for Buck Wargo. And here's something that I thought was actually interesting. In the uh, description for Desmond or Tiger Man, you find out that he was actually a character taken from an issue of Tales of the Unexpected. In fact, Tales of the Unexpected number 90 from 1965. There was an actual story in there about two guys who were searching for this ancient jungle myth or whatever that was the uh, legend of the Tiger Man. And Desmond actually originated in that story. So Bo Smith knows his stuff. He was able to take a story from a probably pretty obscure comic from the 1960s and bring a character from that into his storyline. So big credit to Bo Smith for doing that. <sighs> but thankfully, that does it for the book. Um, most of the ads in here we probably covered before. Uh, we've got Superman or the Justice League Task Force video game, which is just a really poor Mortal Kombat ripoff. We have uh, Fleer Ultra Casper cards uh, from the movie Casper with, uh, I think, Bill Pullman and Christina Ricci. And uh, CGI Casper the Ghost. Uh, so there you go. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons is on the next page with the ad with the giant red dragon popping out of the uh, Dungeons and Dragons book. Uh, a French toaster, not French toaster, French toast po profile, which I guess was some sort of grit ad scam. I don't know. We get an ad for the Catwoman uh, year one annual. And I might as well mention, I didn't uh, really say all this. All the annuals for this uh, year were considered to be year one annuals, which were kind of trying to tell the origin story of the characters at the time. And I think it worked pretty well with uh, the Guy Gardner book because, you know, the Guy Gardner warrior persona had only been around for about a year at the time. But it was nice that they gave other people, including, you know, Batman and Catwoman and Superman and whoever else in the DC Universe, their own little year one annuals. Uh, moving on, we've got the uh, Deal of Steel uh, subscription page ad with, it looks like some, I can't tell if that's Bogdanov because his face is sort of covered up by the uh, cover copy here saying the Deal of Steel. But it's an advertisement for the DC subscription page. And then here's something that's pretty 90s and probably not around here. It's the Blockbuster World Video Game Championship, Championship number two. Probably the last championship. And for some reason, uh, I don't get it. Marvel Comics is uh, sponsoring this. So I'm wondering why this is placed so prominently in a DC book. Eh, whatever. Uh, get another ad for DC Comics Online, which uh, has Alan Grant writing Lobo, Denny O'Neill writing Batman, and Doug Mensch writing the Big Book of Conspiracies. So this was at the time, and I think Michael Bailey and I covered this, where DC was trying its hand at uh, getting people on the internet, and mm, it worked one way or the other. And... I'm just going to move to the back outside cover because I'm tired of this issue. 
And I hate to end it on a down note. It's the ad for Batman Forever, opening June 16th. Thanks, Jim Carrey. We appreciate it. Not the best issue, by far. Good story writing by Bo Smith, but oh, all the art. Hopefully next time out, when we cover Annual 2, the artwork will take an improvement, and maybe I'll actually have some fun with that. Plus, we'll also be having some fun when we take a look at Green Lantern number 79. So, come back next time and see what happens with uh, Kyle and Donna after they've finally decided to hook up again. Maybe it'll last forever. No. Anyhow, sorry to end on kind of a downer, folks, but I appreciate you tuning in and listening, and uh, I can't wait to get to the next issue. We'll be doing that here in seven days, so I hope you come back then for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a member of the Two True Freaks family of podcasts. See everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Eagle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to know. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting on. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the new rule 2, and you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook, and now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new DeMontecourt contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast. The opening music for the show is Foreigner with Feels Like the First Time, from their album, appropriately named, Feels Like the First Time. Now, if you have a desire to add this song to your music library or your MP3 library, I suggest you head on over to Amazon.com, where you can download the MP3 or buy a CD for yourself. And the best way to get to Amazon.com is to go through the link at twotruefreaks.com. If you go to twotruefreaks.com, there's a banner up the top left, top left portion of the page. Click on that banner and you'll be automatically transported to Amazon where you can buy the CD, buy the MP3, or buy a myriad other things at Amazon. And every time you make a purchase at Amazon.com through the Two True Freaks link at twotruefreaks.com, a small amount of money comes back to the Two True Freaks website. It doesn't cost you any extra, and every time you make a purchase, it makes sure that the lights stay on here at the Demonsicor headquarters in Milan.